The National is live from Adipec, the second day of the Global Oil and Gas Conference. You can hear the uh, ambiance, the atmosphere. There are a lot of people here. There's a lot of noise. Um, there's a lot of discussion. So I'm happy to say that uh, joining me today uh, at the national stand at Adipec is Robin Mills, CEO of Kamar Energy, a regular contributor to the national. The, he has a weekly newsletter as well as a column and does join us on the Business Extra podcast as well. Robin Mills, welcome. Hello, Mustafa. Hi, everyone. So it's good to have you here and to get your perspective. Um, a full more than 24 hours since Adipec began. It feels like we've run straight from Glasgow and COP26 into Adipec without taking a breath. Um, is that a sort of fair assessment of, of where the discussions are going? I think that's pretty fair. And indeed, there are people who have pretty much literally flown directly from COP26 to, to be here. I was shouting to, to a friend of mine who'd done that uh, this morning. Um, so, you know, I think partly the, the discussion and the topics have very much picked up on COP26. It's interesting. I mean, this is, a, is an oil and gas conference, primarily one of the world's largest, if not the largest. Um, and there's a, a very palpable buzz here. I mean, you can hear it, you know, in the, in the background here. Very busy, very lively. A lot of people are great, you know, glad to be out and traveling again, catching up with old contacts and actually getting out to, to do, do business in person. So that, that, I think, contributes to the moral energy around this, this place. Um, but the discussion, the topics of discussion for an oil and gas conference, it's, it's remarkable, I think, how much it is uh, weighted on energy transition type topics, you know, meaning you know, very much a big part of that discussion is hydrogen and another big part is, is carbon management, carbon capture and storage and technologies around that. You know, if you've gone back a, a couple of editions of this, those technologies might have been 1% or 5% of the discussion and now you, know, you could say that they're, you know, 30, 40, uh, 50%. It's interesting because the, the message here at Adipec with the gathering of the energy industry is that we're not about to shut off um, oil and gas production. That's, that's just not going to happen. And so, if you, but also, they have, everybody really is committed to uh, the path to net zero um, by the timelines given. 2050 for the UAE, uh, longer timelines uh, for other countries. But this isn't just lip service. They want to make it happen. So you can only square the circle, as you said in your, in your, in your column the other day for the National, um, if you use these techniques like hydrogen and carbon capture and other, other technologies? Yes, absolutely. Look, and I think we're seeing that very much uh, at the moment. There's, as you say, there's these net zero commitments and they go to 2050. But that means you have to make substantial uh, real actions, you know, actions in the real world today to start, uh, start making an impression. And you know, countries, including the UAE, have already taken some of those actions, but there's clearly a long way to go. Um, at the same time, we're seeing around the world record gas prices, record electricity prices, record coal prices, and oil prices that are not records, but, but are certainly quite high. And there's a very real concern about underinvestment. And you know, the, the old question of you know, how, how do you get there from here? Uh, how do you get to the, the clean energy utopia um, when energy is carbon free and abundant and, and cheap? Um, from a world now which is, uh, energy is, right now is relatively expensive and, 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 is, and is too dirty. But do you do, how do you do that without disrupting energy supply in, in the meantime? Um, now, I don't think the current price crunch is really related to, let's say, green policies. Um, it is related to, to a period of underinvestment and the impact of the pandemic and, and then the recovery. But it is a warning of what can happen if you move, I'd say not trying to move too fast, but if you move in, a, in an unintelligent way or in a rush. Um, Dr. Sultan from Adnock, you know, mentioned that yesterday. He said, you know, it's not about um, unplugging the uh, the oil and gas industry from the global energy system. 
And, and, and I think, yeah, it's not about unplugging it, but it is about rewiring it. And part of that rewiring is about the hydrogen and, and, and carbon side. How do we deal with those? And it's an opportunity. And, and do you sense from your conversations here at Adipec that, that people do see an opportunity in the transition? Oh, completely. And I think that's what strikes me. Now, look, it probably helps, to be honest, you know, knowing the cycles of the oil and gas industry. It probably helps that oil and gas prices are pretty high right now. People come into this in a buoyant mood. There's budget to spend. There, you know, there's new projects and so on. Um, so that helps people feel a bit more optimistic about the energy transition. But I absolutely think, you know, I, I have not heard anybody really expressing concerns here that um, this is that the transition is, is a bad thing or something that has to that we have to fight or oppose. Um, it's absolutely about you know, wh where's the opportunity in hydrogen and in, in carbon and in cleaning up the, uh, the oil and gas business. So, you know, I heard a, a comment today that, you know, the, oil, that the hydrogen business by 2050 could be a, a trillion dollar a year business. So, you know, oil today, let's give an example, is about two trillion a year. So you're talking about in the next 30 years building up a business that is equivalent to, to half of the global oil business, which has taken 150 years to, to establish. This is a huge task and, you know, there are opportunities for, for everybody in this. It's not unprecedented if you think about the big tech companies that are now the largest companies in the world that weren't around 25 years ago. Yeah, it's not. But, you know, the big tech company, with all due respect to them, the big tech companies, you know, yeah, there's some physical infrastructure going alongside it. But a lot of it is about, you know, co code and intellectual property. You know, the oil and gas business is still and the hydrogen business, the carbon business will be the same. It's about hard assets. It's about massive pieces of steel and, and concrete and aluminium and pipe, piping and ships and so on that go together to make up a very capital intensive industry. And uh, you know, the investment cycles and that is, it's not, not a year like software, the investment cycle is, uh, you know, for a major project is, is a decade. So you know, 2050 we've got to be net zero, so we have what, three cycles of investment. That's really not that much. So if we, we go out, we're in, obviously in Abu Dhabi, Adipec, you can hear um, all, all, the, all the, the action, the noise. Um, but if we think about beyond the UAE, we think about other parts of the Gulf, other parts of the Middle East. I mean, uh, for, as I understand it, Jennifer Niana, our uh, energy correspondent, was talking about the, the Kuwaitis saying that they're going to put together a renewable strategy. Um, we also have, obviously, the Saudis and, and the Bahrainis talking about net zero as well. But then we have Iraq, you know, relatively um, sizable producer that needs to, to get hold of, of renewables and clean energy, and then other countries across the region as well. It's not a, the same smooth picture across from North Africa all the way to sort of Central Asia, is it? It is a patchy picture, right? Um, although I think you see that, you know, in, in, in other parts of the world as well. Even within Europe, you know, you have the, the countries that are quite advanced in the clean energy transition you know, like the, um, the UK, for example, and you have others perhaps in Eastern Europe that are still very dependent on coal. So, you know, the, the, this patchy transition is not unique to this region, but it, that's certainly true. And I think, you know, the UAE made a net zero commitment. They said 2050. Um, Saudi Arabia said 2060, but Bahrain also said 2060. Those are the, the three that we have in this region so far. You know, maybe others will follow. Um, but I think that has been very positive in terms of accelerating um, the desire to, to to do more in these, these clean energy technologies by others. So we've seen um, um, Oman, for example, has come up very well in, in renewable energy and is now looking at some massive, very impressive hydrogen projects um, that have some, some pretty serious backers behind them. As you say, Kuwait, um, which had been, been uh, I guess, in, in kind of a pause mode on, on renewables, now said that it will, will get back to that and, and thinking about a major renewable project. And, and Iraq, which is for, for a few years has been trying to get going in renewables, not having much luck. 
now I think there's about seven gigawatts of, of renewable projects being talked about. And, you know, I mean, Iraq has a long and difficult road for this, but it's certainly a lot more um, credible and encouraging that, that, than it was a year, even a year ago. Um, so we are seeing that, that kind of progress. I think we're also seeing that countries are trying to build very much on their natural advantages. And if you look at, as I, I mentioned, Oman, Oman has great solar and wind for making hydrogen. The Saudi project at Neom in, in the northwest, again, a very good site for solar and wind and pretty well suited for, for going to Europe. Um, and, and then the North African countries, and, you know, particularly Morocco and, and Egypt, again, good renewable resources and that they have pretty good access to the European market too. So, um, you know, the country's trying to build on, on their natural advantages there. And I think it's this competitive dynamic, I think, is a, is a good one in encouraging everybody to, to get moving. So the difference between the, the, the types of hydrogen that we're producing or, or looking to produce, there is green hydrogen, which is, as you mentioned, where it's produced from using solar or wind power, renewable clean energy. And then we have blue, blue hydrogen, which is actually related to uh, natural gas, which isn't obviously initially, at least on first glance, as clean um, in terms of emissions as green hydrogen. But there is real opportunity in, in, in blue hydrogen, isn't there? Yes, and you know, blue hydrogen, as you say, produced from natural gas. It's obviously key to have, if you're going to do that, to have two things. You need relatively cheap and abundant natural gas, which of course the, the Gulf has, uh, does have. And you are then turning into hydrogen and you are taking out the carbon dioxide and that has to be stored safely, otherwise it'll, it'll contribute to climate change, of course. So that means that you need good subsurface reservoirs where the, the, the CO2 can be stored for uh, essentially forever, um, you know, thousands of meters un, un, under the surface. And again, the Gulf has great reservoirs because we know about them because they've been well studied in the, in the search for oil and gas. Um, and so the, there is, the Gulf has that kind of opportunity set, I think, to a, a greater extent than, than almost any other region of the world. Now, blue hydrogen, I think because of the association with the fossil fuel industry, there are some parts of, uh, of politics and, and environmental movement that are kind of suspicious of it. Um, but as you say, if it's done well, blue hydrogen will, will cut emissions by 90% plus, 95%. So it is still a very clean way of using fossil fuels effectively. Um, the other important thing about blue hydrogen, it has the potential to scale up pretty quickly because we already produce a lot of, lot of natural gas. Uh, and that is, I think, key to kind of kickstarting the hydrogen industry and building up a, an industry that has critical mass and then green hydrogen over time can play a larger and larger role in that too. Robin, do you think that the momentum that we've seen in COP26 in Glasgow, although you know some people aren't fully satisfied, but we've really seen some uh, accomplishments. And here, in, in in terms of sentiment from the energy industry, and then going through to COP27 in Egypt um, in 2022, and then all the way to the UAE hosting COP28 in 2023, do you see the next two years as being a continuation? Can we can we get a smooth journey as as, as we move? along these lines that we've been discussing here for the last few minutes. Yeah, so as you say, not everybody was satisfied with the COP26, and, and that's natural. Look, in these international gatherings, you know, 180 plus countries with very disparate positions, um, international negotiations are a messy business. Uh, of course, you know, the, the end result is, is always going to be very unsatisfactory, but the important thing is it represents progress. Um, I think if COP26, you know, um, it reaches certain, certain agreements and certain goals, to, to go much beyond that, gets, starts, it to me actually starts getting problematic because what's really key is, you know, not what countries pledge to do at COP26, but what they then actually do do. Um, and it's no good having net zero pledges that, that people say 2050, and that still seems like a long way away. And then they, they go away, they do nothing, and they, they come back next year and they're no further forward. 
So you know, it's really essential that, that these COP uh, outcomes are practical and that countries then go and work on it. So it'll be, I think, firstly, very important to see in Egypt, uh, as you say, at COP27 and the UAE COP28, that in the interim, countries, including the host countries, have made substantial progress on, on real stuff on the ground, delivering some of the, these pledges, uh, turning them into real achievements. That, I think, is more, is more effective than having an enormously ambitious outcome from the talks themselves. And there have been some important groundwork uh, laid at COP26. In, in the ramp to it, I think it was very useful in putting pressure on a number of countries to, to tighten their ambitions. Um, and then there have been some things on the international rules, for example, on finance uh, and on carbon trading. Now, carbon trading, I think, is very important. And um, that, again, is a big opportunity for the Gulf. Um, the Gulf is, is potentially a region that could be an important centre of of carbon storage, for example. That is a service that the Gulf could be selling to, to other countries that can't easily reduce their emissions. And, and to make that work, you need some kind of international carbon trading. Robin Mills, CEO of Kamar Energy. Thanks so much for being with us down here at Adepec. Um, it's been uh, an exciting week. Hopefully it'll be a successful week for you, I hope. Already a very successful week, but uh, a couple more days to go. Uh, you can sign up to Robin's newsletter at thenationalnews.com. Energy this week, uh, you'll get it in your inbox every Wednesday morning. So do make sure to do that. Uh, all that remains to thank our production team, Arthur Edison and Aisha Khan, and you all for listening. If you like this show, do subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your audio content. Thank you.